the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There are a few basics that I think, generally speaking, all of us can agree on when it comes to discrimination, that it is beyond illegal, highly inappropriate, impolite, if you will, to discriminate someone, let's say in the case of housing on the basis of uh, uh, race or gender. I think we could all agree that it's not fair or appropriate to discriminate in housing someone based on age, meaning you just don't want to do business with them or rent to them because you don't like that they're too young or too old. Well, we might have gotten the memo, but the ownership of an apartment building down in Southern California apparently was absent the day the memo was passed out. A shocking story regarding the consequences being faced by 86-year-old Deanna Martin. Joining us to tell us more about this story is constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, counselor as always. Thank you for being with us. I, I, I guess at multiple layers, this is a, you got to be kidding me, not only because of the, the discriminatory fashion in which this was done on religious grounds, which we'll get to in a moment, but on age grounds, but then repeated, and, and, and shockingly so. You know, you like to think that the people that you vote for, that you put in office, have got some modicum of intelligence. But this guy, as the city's vice mayor, apparently has none. Tell us what's going on here. Uh, yeah, this is uh, unbelievable, but it's unfortunately very real. Deanna Martin is uh, an 85-year-old, actually she's now 86-year-old, um, she was living in a apartment complex with senior citizens, and uh, she lives her faith. She loves the Lord, and uh, in there in Hanford, California, the Wingate Village Apartments. Well, what happened is, uh, you know, she's been there for a, a good, you know, long while, for nearly 14 years. Uh, she's been, uh, you know, been, you know, been uh, residing for a long time. Well, anyway, what happened was. Uh, the gentleman who bought it, who's now the city's vice mayor, uh, evicted her before the lease was expired. And the reason cited was because of her uh, religious activities uh, and specifically sharing her faith and offering to pray for people. Um, that's, you know, that's, out, that's outrageous. Now, mind you, when she, um, you know, when, when Mark, this happened when uh, she was uh, recovering from uh, strokes and a heart attack. Uh, when she began to cry, protesting that it was winter and she had no children living nearby, he responded that it was not his problem. Uh, that's what what's, uh, was reported. So uh, she was evicted. Well, as it turns out, someone, uh, one of her family members, had heard about a Pacific Justice Institute. Something similar we have we're dealing with up in. Uh, in the Napa area, the uh, veterans, California veterans home, and 
we were contacted, and so we at Pacific Justice Institute have uh, stepped in, and we have filed a complaint with the state and are uh, right now representing her. I find it shocking that, blatantly so, after she was first told by the owner, get out, don't like you here because you're you're sharing your faith and praying with people, uh, that, that shortly after that conversation, the son of the owner showed up, repeated not just the religious bias, but then went on to cite her age. I mean, are, are these people entirely clueless? Apparently so. Yeah, and age... <laughs> discrimination is not valid grounds. This was an apartment complex for senior citizens, but this new owner, Draxler, uh, you know, he apparently has reportedly has uh, been uh, evicting the senior citizens and putting in the younger people so he can charge more rent. I guess that's the deal. Uh, but it's just a very cold-hearted um, total treatment of her. You know, even her parking place, uh, what they reportedly did was uh, uh, change her parking place to the far end of the, the complex, right next to a smelly dumpster. Uh, that That's what she's been having to deal with. Essentially creating a hostile environment, forcing her. Yes, and then they finally just evicted her and booted her out in the in wintertime, no place to go. They didn't care. Uh, and it was because of her faith and because she was a senior citizen. Uh, that's what uh, has been uh, uh, documented and reported. And it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a real, real tragedy. And we at Pacific Justice are going to bat for her. And once again, this, they found out about Pacific Justice because of uh, reporting that had been t- taking place about the other senior citizen uh, about the same age who has been threatened to be evicted because she had a Bible study uh, in the California Veterans Home up in, the, in Napa Valley. So it's, uh, uh, we may get more calls like this in the future, and um, we will be dealing with them just, just the same. It's sad. In a state like California, where we're supposed to be so sophisticated, you can't see me using my air quotes here with my fingers, but we're so sophisticated here, uh, and apparently, you know, want to be kind and knowledgeable, uh, and yet in this case, neither, apparently, uh, and just to blatantly say, you're old, you're religious, we want you out. I mean, <laughs> that they didn't see that was a lawsuit waiting to happen? Wow. Um, hopefully, the, there's an opportunity here to set a real example um, that uh, you can't just discriminate based on religious grounds or because you think somebody is 86 years old and they're too, therefore too old. And what I find ironic is that, uh, uh, according to information I have seen, that this isn't even a case to say, well, there's the age and the and the the you know sharing her faith, but most importantly, she never pays her bill on time and she's you know six weeks late in rent. But that's not the case, is it? Right, and I think that's real important you mention that because some people will try to use false pretexts to say, oh, I was discriminated against. In reality, there was a valid reason. Here, there was no valid reason for her to be evicted before her lease had even expired. She'd paid her rent faithfully, her bills. Um, you know, she didn't play loud music, and, uh, you know, she was she was a great tenant. She was a Christian tenant who loved the Lord, and um, and like every good every Christian, she was living her faith. You know, and 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 you, you just you hate it when the senior citizens crank up the Glenn Miller too loud. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, enough with the Bing Crosby. Yeah, exactly. So you know, she's sharing her faith, offering to pray for people as she saw fit. Um, these are 
you know, this is this is uh, she's she's very uh, she'd be an ideal tenant. Yeah, this is this is nor- normal human contact, normal action, and a very abnormal reaction from the landlord. Well, um, hopefully the landlord's going to be handed his hat and then some when this is all said and done. You hate to see it go that direction, but you know. Uh, people ought to be communicated a message that you just can't treat people this way based on religion or based on age. Well, we appreciate the time and the effort um, on behalf of Deanna Martin, and uh, we'll be praying for a very positive outcome uh, for her and a not-so-friendly one for the landlord there at uh, Windgate Village Apartments in Hanford. Constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus, as always, we appreciate both your time and the hard work, Brad. Keep up the good, good work. Online, pji.org, pji.org. All right, let's uh, check out the good work of our friends over at the KFAX Traffic Center at 616. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as you know, the um, presidential race is already well underway, and there are like, I don't know, 35, 80, 90, 200 candidates on the Democrat side. Amazing. Um, A lot of them just need to be told to sit down. A few are uh, not the minor ones, but the major ones, one of which, several of which, frankly, might wind up facing Donald Trump in the election next year. Um, One, potentially, uh, with the CV certainly to, uh, to take a run at the presidency, is the former vice president, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, of course, is a Roman Catholic, and as such, um, has held certain positions during his tenure, uh, both in Congress and even as the VP, uh, that, that seem to, at levels, be in harmony with um, Roman Catholic teaching, although most recently a big flip. We'll find out exactly what that abortion flip-flop is all about. Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. I think this is an important question, Brian, because there is a likelihood, don't know how strong, but there is a likelihood that Joe Biden could be facing President Trump in the election cycle next November. And with that in mind, um, his shift in relationship to the Hyde Amendment um, is one that I think voters need to be aware of. Tell us all about this. Well, it's interesting, Craig, you bring that up, because really, in some ways, Joe Biden has needed to differentiate himself from one of the most radical uh, collections of Democrats we've ever seen. And uh, in some ways, his history on the Hyde Amendment helped to do that. The Hyde Amendment basically said that the federal government, while, of course, we all know that Roe versus Wade has legalized abortion across the board and across the land, the Hyde Amendment specifically says that passed initially in 74 and has been renewed again and again. Um, that historically says that funds from the federal government will not go to abortion unless the woman's life is in actually in danger. And the good thing about it is it was at least some some fig leaf, you might say, for Catholics like Biden, who could say, well, okay, we won't fund it. But he now, when he was asked about it, he said he supported it, and then in order to walk and really march in lockstep with the new Democrat Party, 
He's repudiated his years of voting for keeping the federal government from funding this industry. So he's made a major flip-flop, and it's uh, it's very interesting because in some ways I think he, he needs to show, if anything, that he is not as extreme. Again, this is not the Democrat Party we grew up with. This is a Democrat Party that, you know, the term progressivism is very different than the term liberal. And without getting into political philosophy, you need to know that progressivism is going to a new place. It's progressing somewhere. This particular form of progressivism is to superimpose abortion as a cultural value everywhere and to use the power of government to do so. And he now has fallen into line with that. So we're essentially trying to take what we understand to be a very unnormal um, action. And I think most thinking people, most moral individuals would say it's not normal to be at the beginning of a pregnancy and decide to terminate that pregnancy by taking the child's life for whatever the reason, whatever reason might be argued, the health of the woman, uh, it's not convenient time in her life, whatever it might be. Uh, in, in, in the overall scheme of things, that's not normal. But essentially what we're trying to do here then is normalize all forms of this so that even the most radical aspects of abortion will be by those that are less thinking uh, embraced as just uh, what people do. Yeah, it's not at the early forms of uh, pregnancy. Every time, remember what Roe does. It's for all of pregnancy. It's very important that that be reiterated. Even though the trimester system is mentioned in Roe, that's only describing where the abortion is to take place. And at no time under Roe is the child recognized under the law. The child has no rights under the law under Roe v. Wade. And most Americans believe there needs to be some balancing of rights. That child at least has some rights. In Doe v. Bolton, we've talked about this before, Doe v. Bolton is a companion decision. It doesn't get nearly enough recognition, but it is, it is coterminous with, it is enacted with Roe. And in Doe v. Bolton, the famous phrase we hear, well, the life of the mother, he doesn't talk about the life of the mother in Doe v. Bolton. Justice Blackman spells it out for the abortionist. He talks about the health of the patient, and he says it's up to the abortionist to determine if killing this child will somehow benefit the health of the patient, and then he defines health. Literally, we have Supreme Court justice digging into medicine, but really, as you listen to his definition, digging into psychobabble, because he says, Health can be determined to be anything having to do with the, the social, the psychological, the age of the mother, the general well-being. Now, that's instruction from a Supreme Court justice to an abortionist, and that the abortionist determines whether or not the health is an issue. And this is the per- person abort about to do the abortion. And if it's, if it's defined so broadly, that's why you hear the word choice. In other words, there doesn't need to be anything wrong with the child, and there doesn't need to be anything immediately physically wrong with the mother. This is done for choice. 
And these decisions, Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, are the law of the land right now. And, of course, the fact that there has been a very liberal interpretation to all of this, that there's never been intentionally so specific definitions offered when we say for the health of the mother, mother, what exactly does that mean and and, and how do we define health? And, of course, they've intentionally left it vague in order to sort of build in this loophole, haven't they? That's right, and it allows for this notion of choice, that there not, need not be a reason. And we see that, we've seen it consistently here in California. If you offer a reason, well, we don't want, as, as uh, Senator Shannon Grove offered a couple of years ago, uh, prohibition for abortions that are done because of the wrong gender. There are certain social groups that would rather have boys than girls, and there are abortions that are done because the baby is a boy. And so Shannon Grove's measure said, well, we would like to prohibit those abortions for gender selection. And the radical abortionists said, no, no, we want abortion on demand. We want choice abortions for any reason or no reason in particular. It's for choice. When you understand, and the way to understand the ideology of the choice movement, abortion for choice, is read the actual writings of Justice Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg is a radical, a radical feminist who believes in abortion for any reason or no reason in particular, believes that traditional marriage and even the, the common law marriage, she's opposed to both of those as being oppressive to women. That traditional marriage, as we've understood it, has oppressed women because women become the child, the ones that care for the children, and now they're being oppressed. And the father goes out and brings in, but the woman has to, she can't go out and have a career. She's limited by these children. This is part and parcel of feminist mentality, that having that child should entirely be a decision, entirely a decision of the woman. Only women can have children, and therefore, according to Justice Ginsburg, and according to all of the writings of radical feminism, these books are available. Uh, Our Bodies, Ourselves is a very famous work of radical feminism. It's ideology, and it's really derived directly from Marxist thinking. In Marx, Marx felt that the one class that society had oppressed, the very first oppressed class was women, and they were oppressed through marriage. Radical feminism is, in fact, a Marxist ideology. And under Marxism and under all forms of progressive thinking, there are classes of people that can be dismissed. In order to move forward and bring about the great change, we need to have this great change. And when you move forward, you have to get some people out of the way. Yeah, and, 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 and clearly, Brian, uh, that's, that's the big agenda here, is getting certain people out of the way that could be deemed inconvenient. And again, I want to not appear to be at all dismissive or insensitive to women who find themselves in unexpected or unplanned pregnancies. Uh, But I've always wondered about the argument that it's a woman's right to choose, okay? Considering the fact that 50% of all abortions happen to women, I'm not talking about the woman who's pregnant. That's 100%, obviously. But 50% of the babies that are aborted are women. Where is their right to choose being protected? Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. We appreciate the insights. This is going to certainly be a pivotal topic 
as we head into the 2020 elections, to be sure. 632, let's get you updated now on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Mention that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, Think about um, the shortness of the time that you have left and questions with regard to the the significance of your life and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care, <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have, you mean you're, two, you're we, new- have, uh, we have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know very... Uh, and with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine, so I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I, I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't cap, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, if you're a man, you, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, for, you know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had, because I'm an old man now, and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that 
part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to Seventh Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to Seventh Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. And then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department. And I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not I'm not going. <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan. And and, uh, and they, you know, basically said, we're a young army and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss, and uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the ideas of the you know psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, "What are you going to do there?" And I said, "I'm going to you know thank you for coming to my father's memorial service." And I told him what I just shared with your listeners uh, that you know I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving and his whole countenance changed and he said i just got a call from iowa from my family priest and he said your mother is leaving the gas on the stove what do you want to do and you see here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance and he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan and the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns and, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc in Michigan, which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on healthcare issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight. As you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army, serving now as associate professor at the School of Social Work 
and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how to uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have, uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ. But then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. The, you, you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, 
their memories of Scripture, what assurances can we give them? And so the co-author on our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on the, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who were, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we, we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we, if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives, uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and you know, so the, these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work and the church needs to challenge you know to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs help us uh, you know do some late life planning end of life aging in place initiatives uh, helping people prepare for uh, uh, caregiving and now we're talking about you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table. 
and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them in uh, small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming and uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>